uh, to the first book of the Bible, you will find Genesis, the origin of salvation, the origin of the story of salvation. This, this book of Genesis, it's an, a foundation and an introduction to so many things. It introduces creation. It introduces the destruction through sin and the introduction to the story of creation's recreation. When we dive into the book of Genesis, this book of foundations, it covers a lot of ground about a lot of things concerning who God is and how he interacts with creation. And just for a moment, before we dive into Genesis chapter 12, let me give you a bit of a a macroscopic, large view of some attributes that we find right out of the gate in in, in the book of Genesis. And if you have a listing guide, if you got a bulletin on the backside of that, you can follow along. And we are just going to machine gun these attributes, not in a sense of disrespect, but just for the sake of time. We just don't have time to uh, cover all of these. We could spend all day. Who wants to spend all day in the Lord's house? I know I need some sleep. I, need, I know some students need some sleep. I know some leaders need some sleep. So we will be as quick as we can about these. And some of the first attributes that we find who God is and how he relates to creation, we find first and foremost found in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 that God is creator. We see in Genesis 1, 1 that God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. He created everything from nothing. God is creator. God is also love. God is creator and God is Love. We find in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, as God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it, that he loves what he creates. We find over and over in Genesis chapter 1 that God created something and he said it was good. God loves what he creates. We also find in Genesis chapter 5 in in God's love and grace that he spared Enoch. Enoch walked with God and in God's love and grace he, he forestalled the experience and the taste of death for Enoch. In Genesis chapter 6 and all the way through uh, chapter 7, verse 24, God in his infinite love, he saved Noah and his family from being destroyed by the flood waters. God is creator, God is love, but also God is holy, just, and righteous. God is creator, God is love, and God is holy, just, and righteous. We find this in Genesis chapter 3 after the fall of mankind when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. God's response to sin is one of holiness, one of justice, and one of righteousness. See, in chapter 3 in Genesis, we find God delivering corrective and effective and proper judgments upon Adam, upon Eve, and upon the serpent. Then we find in Genesis chapter 6 and 7, we find humanity as they're spiraling out of control into sinful destruction and God's righteous indignation. He sent a flood that would effectively wipe out all who rejected God. Last week we see in Genesis chapter 11 how after the flood and humanity is backslidden into sinful bad habits and desiring to be God's little g. 
and trying to be God's like big God, big G, big God, and trying to be like him, trying to create as God created the, the Tower of Babel incident. God intervenes with justice and righteous action. He confuses the languages of all the people and he scatters them throughout the world. So from a macroscopic view of Genesis chapters 1 through 11, there's a lot of ground to cover. There's a lot of attributes that just scream out of the book of Genesis that give us foundational insights of who God is and how he relates to his creation. Now, this morning as we dive into Genesis chapter 2, and we'll look at the whole chapter in just a moment, we're going to now put the microscope, if you will, we're going to put the microscopic lens and we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2 and we are going to find that God is also, he's creator, he is love, he is holy, he is just, he is righteous, but he is also a promise maker and he is also a promise maker. Keeper. So if you have your Bibles and you've turned to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, let's begin reading. We'll read Genesis chapters, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. I see this as like one side of a coin. And then in verses 10 through 20, we're going to see the other side of the coin. So we're going to look at part 1, if you will, and then we're going to look at part 2 in just a moment. But right now, we are going to find that Jesus is, or God is indeed a promise maker. So beginning in verse 1, it says... Thus, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. And in all the families of the earth will be blessed in you. Verse 4. So Abram went forth as God had spoken to him, and Lot, his nephew, went alongside him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and and Lot, his nephew, and all the possessions which they had accumulated and the persons in which they acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was in the land, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So Abram, he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there Abram built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Verse 9, Abram journeyed on continuing south toward the Negev. And in Hebrew, that is Hebrew for south, which is Negev. So before we go any further, I need to uh, make an important note because through this message in particular, I will be addressing Abraham as Abram and Sarah as Sarai. And the reason why I'm doing that is because it holds a lot of theological weight, a lot of anticipation for chapters to come when God changes Abram's name to Abraham and Sarai's name into Sarah. So to, be, to honor the text this morning, to, to give it um, the appropriate approach, this morning I will be addressing Abram 
uh, Abraham as Abram, Sarah as Sarai. And if I slip up and I say Abraham and Sarah, uh, we've got a suggestion box in the back. If you can put tally marks on how many times I boo-boo this morning, I will look at those and I will repent and ask for y'all's forgiveness. So just to clarify for that just a moment, just to explain why I'm calling Abraham, Abram, and Sarah, Sarai. So without further ado, let's dive into Genesis chapter 12. We find God's promises, God's promises to Abram. And as we look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, we will find God calling Abram to leave everything behind, to cut all ties from where he was, where he was living, what he was doing, take off and leave to a land that Abram, just quite honest, has never seen, has never heard about, has never gotten a chance to look on Google Maps to see, mm, what kind of territory are we looking at here? Uh, is there a lot of uh, rivers? Is there a lot of fertile land? I have no idea. God says, you need to pack everything up. You need to get your wife. You need to get your nephew. You need to get your possessions. You're going to go out and you're going to follow me. The God who is creator, who is love, who is holiness, who is justice, who is righteous. He comes straight to Abram and promises Abram things that he could not even possibly imagine. Just for an example, see, God promises Abram that Abram is going to be a great nation, a father of a great nation. God promises Abram that he is going to bless him and make his name great. God promises Abram that he's going to be a blessing to those who bless Abram, and he's going to curse those who curse Abram, basically saying he's going to bless his allies and he's going to curse his enemies. And then God promises that all the families that come out of Abram, meaning his descendants, his family line will be blessed because of Abram. And all of these promises, all of these things that Abram tells, uh, God tells Abram, it all hinges on one circumstance, one hinge, one requirement. That Abram give God his full and explicit faith and trust. That Abram trust puts all of his faith and trust in God and his promises, pack everything up and go follow God. Now let's, let's back up and let's clarify a couple of things. Because to us, it's very easy to just pack up and go. I mean, some of y'all in this room, y'all might be military and y'all might get that phone call that says, hey, you're going across the country to be wherever. And you just pack up your stuff and you go. Sometimes you get a job offer and it's like you're going way across over here. You're going to go. And to us, to us to pack up and leave, it doesn't carry as much weight for those, especially who are in the military and y'all move around in places. It just, to us, it just seems normal. For those who go to college, y'all pack up your things and y'all go to college and y'all get that degree in history. I, I recommend that because history is the best <coughs> degree. Uh, and then y'all will get a job and it could be who knows where, New York City, it could be San Francisco, who knows. Well, back then, where you lived, where you were located, the area in which you lived was entrenched in uh, your family identity. And let me ask y'all just for a moment, for just show of hands, if you will, can you raise your hands if not only were you born here, but you also grew up here? Any show of hands? Quite a few, quite a few. Um, I imagine that some of y'all probably have generations who have lived here, like y'all are native Clarksvillians, if you will. 
And there's like some family identity of where you live and what your family did. And there's family ties and your family grew up here and you grew up here and you got married here and you've had kids here and they've grown up and they've lived here. There's a lot of family identity. And much like back then, Abram's family living in Ur, just a little south of Babylon, uh, God calls Abram to, to just pack up and travel thousands of miles to a place that God doesn't really tell him where he's going or how far he's going to have to go. There is no Google Maps coordination here like where, where and we're just packing up and we're going to go this way. We have no idea what we're going to see. We have no idea what we're going to encounter. There's bandits along the road. There are foreign armies that like to attack people along the way. We have no idea what kind of situations and circumstances that we're going to have to run into. And Abram, we find Abram's response in Genesis chapter 4 that he responds in faith. But before I get ahead of myself, we also have to, to talk about this reality. Because in Genesis chapter 11, verse 30... As, as you look and you see uh, Abram's family lineage, it takes note in verse 30, it, it introduces Sarai, Abram's beautiful, beautiful wife. And it makes this very important note that Sarai is barren. She can't have kids, no children. So this is a very, 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 very important reality. When God comes to Abram and says, I'm going to make you a father of nations. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give the land that I've promised you to your descendants. But also keep in mind, your wife can't have kids. So with all of that, that reality that, that God presents to Abram and all of that kind of in the background, we see Abram's response we find that Abram, without any delay, without any doubts, without any hesitation, without any questions, he packs up his family and all of his possessions, and he takes off to the promised land. See, in faith and trust in God's promises, Abram, he responds in obedience and faith and trust in God alone. He follows God, this whole weekend we've been talking about an authentic faith, following Jesus Christ, what it looks like to be an authentic follower of Jesus Christ. It's more than just an Instagram post. You know, you post your, your Bible study where you got your Bible and you got your coffee cup and you got your devotion. You're like, feeling like a Christian today. Uh, maybe not tomorrow and maybe not yesterday, but today I'm super Christian we talked about how uh, there are times where the world will try to give you shortcuts in following Jesus to make it look easy and to make it look uh, without any difficulty, and that's not authentic. Here in Genesis chapter 12, students, we find Abram, another example, just like the disciples who followed Jesus. Abram, without any questions, without any hesitations, without any idea of where he was going, he got up and he followed God. And faith and trust and obedience. Because he understood when God gave Abram a promise, he was going to respond with faith and trust in the Lord God. What a mighty man of faith. What a mighty man of trust. What a mighty man to follow an example, right? I mean, we're talking about Abram, later to be named Abraham, the father of nations, the, in the hall of fame of faith. If you look in Hebrews chapter 11, like he's the guy. 
to follow. Bet he had really long hair and an awesome beard. But now, so we see that God is a promise maker. God has given Abram these huge promises that he just cannot fathom, which he cannot fully understand, and he heads down and he follows the Lord into the promised land. And then whenever he gets there, right, so he travels thousands and thousands and thousands of miles, and he gets to the promised land, and what does he find? Uh, There's some people already here. I thought you gave me some prime real estate where it was just like an empty lot. Like, I'm just going to come in, and I'm just going to dwell and have no issues. Abram and company, they come down to the promised land, the land of Canaan, and uh, there's uh, some Canaanites there. And not only that, but, (coughs) excuse me, uh, they've not only got, they're there in the land, but they've also got the best land. Have y'all ever played Settlers of Catan, where the, the people up front, they get the best places on the map so they can get the most resources? That's what the Canaanites did. They took all the good stuff. They took all the rivers, and they took all the fertile land. So when Abram comes up, he's like, Lord, uh, who, are, who are they? And we find in verse 7, God appears once again to Abram and says, Abram, quiet down. Calm down, take a deep breath. I'm going to give you this land to your descendants. And again, though it doesn't make sense, though he doesn't fully understand, Abram responds in faith and trust and obedience and following God. God is a promise maker. So we find on one side of the coin, we find God is a promise maker. But then on the other side of the coin, the other side of the story, part two, if you will, we find that God is not just a promise maker because we can make promises and we don't sometimes keep, keep those promises. Sometimes we break those promises. Well, we find in, in, in the Bible that Jesus is not only a promise maker, but God is a promise keeper. So if you have your Bibles, let's read verses 10 through 20, and we're going to talk about a really horrible, not good, terrible, very unfun day. Verse 10 says this, now there was a famine in the land. The promised land's not looking too promising right now. There is a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, to visit, to vacation, to just stay for a while, for the famine was severe in the land. When it came about that he came near to Egypt, He said to Sarai, his wife, see now, I know you are a beautiful woman. Now, husbands, take note. I need, if you got notes, I need you to write this down. Like, you need to say to your wife over and over again, I see that you are a beautiful woman. Now, I need you to write that down. Circle it, underline, tell yourself, I need to tell her that all the time, and you will stay out of trouble, and you will avoid a lot of messes. But there's a cutoff point. I need you to not write what he does uh, in just a second. He says to Sarai, his wife, see now, I know you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, hmm, this is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister. Now, husbands, that's where you stop. You don't write that down. You just, you cross that out. You say, "Mm mm-mm, I'm not going to do that. Say to the Egyptians that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you, and I may live on account of you. Verse 14, it came about when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Miss Sarai was a very beautiful woman. Pharaoh's officials saw her and and praised her to Pharaoh. 
and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he treated Abram very well for her sake. And Pharaoh gave Abram sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Camels, a super luxury item back in that day. Verse 17, but the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Verse 18, then Pharaoh called Abram and said, what on earth have you done to me? Why did you not tell me that Sarai was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and please go. Just go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted Abram and his company away and with his wife and all that belonged to him. Now, before we dive into this part of the story, I've got to ask, have y'all ever had a bad situation where you just kind of make one bad decision after bad decision after bad decision, and it just seems like this big ball of mess that you have no idea how to get yourself out of. Have y'all ever been in a situation? I like to see the heads go like this because I don't feel alone because I'm about to share uh, a story. This is a safe place. This is confession time, if you will. So if you look uh, at me and think you're a doofus, then you're absolutely correct. But whenever I was younger, uh, my granddad gave me the opportunity to plow, to use his tractors, to, to borrow his, his farm equipment, and we would plow after wheat harvest. So after the wheat is all cut, we get our tractors, we get our plows, and we would plow and plow and plow and plow and plow, just hours and hours and hours and hours. And before we would start plowing, we would have to, of course, naturally fuel up the, the tractor's gas tanks. And something that my grandpa would always tell me, only me, because I was the doofus, um, he would always remind me, Tanner, don't forget to put the gas cap back on the tractor. After you get done fueling, don't forget. You're going to take it off. You're going to put it on the plow. You're going to fuel up. You're going to just take off. You're going to plow that, that gas cap. It's gone. Better get your shovel because uh, you ain't finding it. Um, you got to remember, don't forget to put the gas cap on. Okay, Grandpa, I got it. I got it. I won't let you down. I've never let you down. When have I ever done anything ever stupid in my entire life? Um, so I get to fueling. I get all excited because I'm about to start plowing. I fuel up. I get done. It gets full. I put up the, the gas hose. I get in the tractor. I just take off. I'm going to start plowing. I've got hours and hours of plowing ahead of me. And something that you would do as you, you plow, something that you have a tendency to do while you're driving, of course, there's no, like, traffic out in a, an open field, so you don't have to worry about, like, looking straight ahead. If you're driving a vehicle on I-24, please keep your head straight. Don't be looking behind you. That's not safe. But as you're driving in a tractor, you find yourself looking behind you because you want to make the lines, you want to make them good. You want to make them straight. And you don't want my, to make my grandpa mad because he will tan my hide. So I'm going to make them straight. I'm looking behind. And then the first time I look ahead of me, I see the hole, the nozzle place where you fill up gas for your tractor. Fuel is spewing out of the gas tank. It, you know, it's rocky. You know, you're going up and down, up and down. And diesel is just like a water fountain, like Old Faithful at Yellowstone National Park. It's just coming up. So I panic. And I stop the tractor, I turn it off, I, I'm just, I'm shaking. I'm just like, what on earth am I going to do? Ooh, I got an idea. 
My grandpa, being a very wise man full of knowledge and wisdom, he would keep a roll of toilet paper in the cabin of the tractor because, you know, you got to do what you got to do, right? So I looked at that roll of toilet paper and I thought to self, I was like, self, I got this. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this whole roll of toilet paper and I'm going to insert that into the gas hole. And as toilet paper does, it's going to soak up any fuel that's going to try to vomit itself out of this tractor. And I will get done uh, plowing. I'm going to go back to where I was. I'm going to get that shovel. I'm going to start digging holes. I'm going to find that gas cap. I'm going to get out of, out of this situation on my own terms. I got this. What could possibly go wrong, right? So I get along going, and we're going, and I see the wad of toilet paper, and it's getting, you know, it's soaking it up. Fuel is not spewing. All is fine and good. Then I'm going along. Of course, I'm looking behind me, make the lines really straight. And I look ahead, and I notice something. I go, hmm, the toilet paper's gone. Where'd it go? Well, it was really windy outside. Like, I was like, okay, it surely didn't fall in the gas tank because that would be ridiculous. What is the possibility that that could possibly happen? I just thought, okay, the wind, you know, the wind took it. Okay, fine, I'm in a hole. So, okay. I keep going along, I get done plowing, you know, fuel is all over the, uh, the tractor. I get back, I start, my, you know, digging for the, the, the gas cap. It's gone, it's lost. Big mess. So we get to plowing again, and we're going down, and we realize the tractor's engine starts to die when it gets about halfway, you know, halfway empty. Well, that's odd. How could that, what could possibly be the root cause of this? So we take the fuel line out, we detach it, and we're taking a look at the filter. And lo and behold, that filter is covered in toilet paper. The toilet paper fell into the gas tank. This entire roll of four-ply toilet paper is now in the gas tank of this tractor. Oh, this is not good. So we end up having to take the gas, we had to rip the gas tank off the tractor, clean it out, putting this gas, uh, this, this fuel tank back into the tractor. It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And I got my, t- my high quarters whipped for that. So don't ever put toilet paper in a gas tank. But story aside, see, as bad as that is, see, Abram had a very horrible, not good, very bad, terrible, terrible day. He got himself in a bind. He got himself in a bad situation that led to a bad decision after bad decision to a point where he, he's, uh, how am I going to get out of this? And let, So let's dive into that for just a moment. So we find in, in verses 10 through 16, we find Abram's ruse. Abram's plan, Abram's plot, Abram's uh, attack plan, if you will, on how to take matters into his own hands. You know, God has given him this promise that he's going to go to this land and he's going to, to give his descendants this land. And, and I, he doesn't understand how this is going to play out, but he has shown great faith, great trust in the Lord but we find that as, as Abram and, Sabra, and Sarai and his nephew Lot, they're wandering in the land, a famine hits. And it's not just any ordinary famine. Like, it's, it's, it's a bad enough famine that it's like, we need to go. We need to go or we're going to starve to death. So he gets this idea. He's got to leave the promised land that doesn't look so promising anymore. He's got to pack everything up and he's going to go to the Nile River in Egypt. And a lot of theologians and biblical scholars, they ponder the thought like, why on earth did Abram 
go to the Nile River in Egypt? Why on earth, of, of all places, you know, this whole scenario that we're about to unfold, why did they go down to the Nile River? And something that they've discovered in, in, in recent history, you know, when, when famines hit, to go down to the Nile, the Nile River was the perfect place for people to, native Egyptians would go to the Nile River, and people from the surrounding area of, of the map, if you will, they would all travel to the Nile River, have a bit of a vacation, while the drought, you know, the famine dissipates in their land. Because they've discovered around the Nile River multiple different civilizations, just artifacts and writings and pottery and stuff from different civilizations that say, you know, they came for a vacation, <laughs> And that's what you do when a drought hits. You go to the Nile River, you get a suntan, uh, in my case a sunburn, and you just kind of wait it out while that famine uh, dissipates in your land. But there's a problem. See, Egyptians, Egypt was not a very, very kind place for strangers, especially strangers who have beautiful wives. See, a custom that Egyptians had was that when, when strangers would come through customs, if you will, if they're trying to get into Egypt so they can have their vacation in the Nile River, something that Egyptian officials would do is they would filter people out and go, ooh, your wife is very, very pretty. Um, how about, since I'm a, an Egyptian official and I can kind of do whatever I want, I'm just going to kill the husband and I'll just take the beautiful wife as my own. I mean, this was a common enough practice for Abram to go, ooh, my wife is beautiful. My wife is the most beautiful woman in the world. Husbands, take note. You tell that to your wife all the time. And he realizes that if they're going to go down to Egypt, it was very likely, like nine out of 900 chances that I'm going to get my head cut off. Like I'm going to go down there, they're going to see Sarai, that she's beautiful, and they're just going to rip my head off so they can marry her. So I got an idea. Self, let's do this. Let's take matters into my own hands. And let me go up to my wife and say, Sarai, you're beautiful. You need to tell everybody that I'm your brother because I'm scared that I'm going to die, okay? You're going to tell every Egyptian as we get through that I'm just your brother. I'm not your husband, no PDA. You know, we're going to keep, you know, distance. We're going to leave space for the Holy Spirit, a lot of Holy Spirit. And uh, we're going we're gonna to lie to everybody that I'm your brother so I don't get killed. Well, this lie works, and it works a little too well because it gets to the point where Egyptian officials, it, prick, it tickles the ears of the pharaoh, the high guy on the horse, the leader of Egypt. He discovers that, hmm, Sarai, she's beautiful. Mm, I want her as my wife. And if pharaoh says she's got to be my wife, there is no competition so we find in this story that Pharaoh invites Sarai, invites Abram, probably invites uh, their nephew Lot into their house, and things are going really good. Uh, like Abram has been gifted this stuff by Pharaoh. He's given camels. He's given, uh, he's given all of these things, precious jewels and gold and just stuff, and it's going really, really good until they realize uh, Pharaoh wants to marry Sarai. Uh-oh. Um, if we don't do anything about this, Abram and Sarai, uh, Sarai's about to have two husbands. And as if one husband isn't enough of a headache, uh, she's about to have two. Um, but if they do tell Pharaoh that, hey, uh, we're kind of, you know, sort of really married, 
uh, you can't marry uh, Sarah because uh, Sarah, because I'm married to her. Uh, Pharaoh had every opportunity, every uh, authority under his belt to be like, you know what? You lied to me. Off with your heads and just kill them. Just instantly. For, I mean, who lies to Pharaoh and gets away with it? I'm telling you, Abram and Sarah, they are having a not good, very bad, horrible, terrible day. What on earth are they wanting? Are they going to do? They, Abram took, took the plan by the hands and said, maybe I can just muscle my way through. Maybe if I just take these promises that God gave me, maybe if I just kind of tug them along by my own efforts, my own plans, my own sensibilities, I'm just going to get through. And look at the big, gigantic mess that Abram and Sarai get into. Sarai is about to have two husbands, and if they tell them the truth, they're going to die. But then we find, after Abram's ruse, we find God's intervention. We find in verse 17 through 20 that it's, that it's only appropriate that the Lord God come and take care of an impossible, no-win situation. See, here God intervenes. Straight up in verse 17, God intervenes. And, and if you have notes, write this down because the will of God never compromises to the mistakes of man. The will of God never compromises to the mistakes of man. And what God does is he sends terrible plagues upon Pharaoh and his household, just kind of a foreshadowing of future plagues upon a future Pharaoh found in the book of Exodus. And that it causes Pharaoh... After discovering Abram and Sarai's matrimony, he just orders Abram and Sarai, just, just go. Just leave. Just, just get out of here. I don't want to see your faces. And in a situation where God intervenes, Abram and Sarai, they get out of Egypt without a scratch and without a loss of a dime. A situation that only God could have taken care of. God is a promise keeper. See, God knew that Abram's family, Abram's lineage would not come from a, an, an Egyptian pharaoh. God knew that when he approached Abram and said, I'm going to give you this land to dwell to your descendants, it was not going to be the Egyptians that come in and take over this land. It is not going to come from Pharaoh. It is not going to come from Egypt. It was going to come from Abram, his descendants. Abram, later to be known as Abraham, the father of multitudes. And in fact, Abraham was going to be blessed, be uh, one of the fortunate ones who will have the lineage that goes all the way to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And not only that, but he will be in an example of salvation by faith and God alone, and be a blessing for all who follow in his example. The will of God does not compromise to the mistakes of man. And I find what's interesting in verses 17, uh, 10 through 20, the second part of the story, there's no explanation. and There's really no uh, evaluation of the choices that are good or bad, the choices that are made here. Simply put, it is just a, from a microscope look of part two of Genesis 12 to find that God is a promise keeper. He keeps his problems. Through thick, through thin, through great faith, through wavering faith, God is a promise keeper. 
And before we dismiss this morning, we got a couple of takeaways to take from this passage that we can keep in our back pocket, that we can walk into Monday all the way into Saturday and then into Sunday next week. Some takeaways that we can keep in our pocket that Genesis 12 teaches us this morning. And number one is this, continue, continue in faith and trust in God. See, we got to see a lot about Abram this morning. A man of great faith, a, a man who, who put all of his, his faith and trust on the line by following and obeying in what God promised him. He packed everything up and he just took off to land he's never seen, never smelt, never known about, never looked up on Google Maps. He just took off. And see, Abram could have avoided this gigantic mess that we find in part two of this story if he had just continued in his faith and trust in the Lord God in all situations, in all circumstances. And despite that, despite the roller coaster of Abram's faith, God was faithful to forgive him. God had every right, every means to be like, Abram, oh, you, done, you done did messed up. What on earth are you doing? You're telling people that your wife is your sister? Like what, what is, what's the, you're lying to everybody? You got this big mess of a situation. You know, you know what, Abram, I'm done. I'm going to find somebody else. I'm going to find somebody else who's better, faster, stronger, more faithful, more obedient, who doesn't waver in their faith. That's not what God does. God forgives Abram of his mistake, and Abram, in response to that, he continues in faith. Just read Genesis 13, 14, 15, 16. Now, <laughs> Abram is not perfect. Boy, we see more mistakes coming up in the, up in the, in the next couple of chapters. But despite that, God forgives Abram, and Abram continues in faith. See, we too as Christians, we often look at Abram and be like, man, there's just, there's no way we're going to be like Abram. Abram, he's in the hall of fame of faith. Man, he was the guy. He is the example. And Paul talks about Abraham being, you know, the precursor of, of faith by grace alone. That Abram, Abraham his, he had saving faith in God before the law of Moses even appeared uh, that dropped in, in Exodus. How are we ever to be like Abraham, to be like Abram? There's no way. Well, this picture, these two stories in Genesis chapter 2 say, uh, show us a picture of Christians. We are exactly like Abram. We are exactly like Abraham. There are moments of great faith and great trust and great obedience in God, and then we can do something great and then turn around and make the biggest pile mess known to man. Isn't that real life, Christians? Isn't that real life where there are moments of great faith and great joy and great growth, and you're reading your Bible and you're getting so much out of it, you go to a fall retreat and you're just hungry for the word and you're getting it and it's under it it makes sense and you are just super excited and then you go home and then there's obstacles in your way there's temptations that slap you across the face and there's moments where you make mistakes and you fail and you falter and you're like man what on earth have I done you're an Abraham you're an Abram and remember that God forgives you of those mistakes forgives you of that mess if you come to him and repent and say, God, I just, I just, I screwed up. 
God is faithful to forgive us. And then keep going. Continue in faith and trust in God. Next takeaway. Sin always, 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 always. Sin always leads to more sin. Sin always leads to more sin. Have you ever heard of that old saying like, one lie leads to another lie, which leads to another lie, which leads to a bigger, badder, faster, stronger lie, so you can get out of the first lie that you said, but oh, by the way, you got to get it out of this lie, and then by the end of it, you've just lied to so many people, you're lying to yourself, and you don't know how to get out of it. Everybody thinks that you're super famous, awesome, handsome, whatever, and you just can't get out of this mess. Well, Brother Jeff, he makes a, fam- a very, very wise saying that sin will always take you further than you want to go and make you do things that you never wanted to do. And that is this passage right here. Like Abram, he messed up big time. That lack of faith, that lack of trust, he decided, you know what? I'm just going to take it on my own. I got this. Does Abram got this at the end of this story? Mm, not really. Sin always leads to more sin. Last takeaway. Again, the will of God will not be overcome. No matter what, the will of God will not be overcome by the mistakes of man and will not compromise, excuse me, to the will of man. Abram was told to put his faith and trust in the God who is a promise maker and a promise keeper. And God is the only one who can make such redeeming and restoring promises and keep them into fruition. The will of God will not be overcome. Do you know what the will of God is today? The will of God today is that everybody in this room have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That they would put their full faith and trust in Jesus Christ That they would have a restored relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We find all throughout the Old Testament, from Genesis all the way to Malachi, God makes the same promise. He is a promise maker. I'm going to send my Son. The Son is coming. You read Genesis, you get through uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. You get through uh, the historical uh, books where you find David and, and Solomon. You get into the prophets, and the prophets are telling the God's people, he's sending a son. He's sending the Messiah. He's sending the Christ. He's promised that. He is a promise maker. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. You better repent, by the way. But he's coming. And he's coming. He's coming. And then you look into Matthew and and Mark and Luke and John, and we find what? Promise keeper. Promise made. Promise kept. God is a promise maker. God is a promise keeper. And then what do we find in the New Testament? God promises us, Jesus promises us, if you put your faith and your trust and you follow me, you have an authentic faith in me and you follow me to the ends of the earth, you will have eternal life. You will have a love that is unimaginable. You will have a forgiveness that you cannot comprehend. You will dwell in a place that you've never seen before. You've never, you've never smelt. You have no GPS location on your phone. But you're going to spend eternity with Jesus Christ in heaven. God is a promise maker. God is a promise keeper. Do you believe that this morning? God has made a promise to everyone. And God has a promise to keep for everyone. And this morning, 
this morning on October 10th, 2021, that is the perfect chance. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's time to believe that God is a promise maker. He is a promise keeper. Do you believe this morning? We're going to have a a time of invitation, and uh, we're going to sing a song, and you all have an opportunity to come down. If you have a decision to make today, if you you want today, you want to be made right, you want your sins forgiven, you want to be a new creation in Christ, and you want to spend an eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven one day, and you want to make a decision, you come down. It doesn't matter how many eyes. There's a lot of eyes in here. I understand. But it's not about them. It's about Jesus. And when you come forward, it's not a matter of, I, I, I'm, I'm worried about people watching me. They're going to judge. Well, they already think I'm ugly. So they're going to look at me and see, this is a very ugly mug that I'm seeing before you. They're not gonna, even going to be looking at you because it's not about that. So if you have a decision that you want to make this morning, you want to talk about salvation, you want to ask about baptism, if you want to ask about joining our church, you come down. There is no fear, there is no judgment, there is no wandering eyes, wandering and kind of gossiping on the side like, what on earth are they talking about? I got to know. doesn't matter. This morning is the time to make that decision. God is a promise maker. God is a promise keeper. And in Revelation, he says what? I am coming quickly. And if you read the whole Bible, God is a promise maker. He is a promise keeper. He's coming back, y'all. Can I get an amen? So this morning, we have a moment of decision. We're going to